Father, we want to just take a break here in the middle of the service just to say thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, You are faithful. Never once have we ever had to walk alone, even though sometimes it it may have felt like it. Uh, Sometimes we've gone through the valley of the shadow of death, um, but you have never left our side, and we are so grateful for that. Um, Lord, we celebrate your faithfulness today. We celebrate the fact that you always keep your promises, that you are true to your word, that everything you say you will back up with action because you are a loving and perfect God. So this morning, let us come in, in with, with great confidence and just lay before you all that is distracting us, all of the, the burdens that we carry. Uh, let, them just lay, let us just lay them down at your feet right now because you are faithful, because we can trust you, and then allow you to do what you want to do in us today. <clears throat> Give us the strength, Father, to obey the words that come out of your scriptures today. Um, we need your strength. We need you in us doing that renewing and transforming work in us if we're going to tackle something like what we're looking at today. So be that for us this morning. Bless your word as it goes out. Um, Get me out of the way and do whatever you want to do through me this morning. We just commit the remainder of this time to you and ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you one that you can use. Uh, You are going to need them this morning. And uh, we will jump right in. This morning we're going to tackle the last sermon in our study of the 12th chapter of Romans. We've been looking at our lives and what God's design is for our lives in five different core relationships that we live in. We've been digging into Paul's words to the church in Rome to see what our lives ought to look like. And it's been very good for me to remind myself that I could never come up with a design as good as God's on my own. He is, after all, my creator, and his ways are perfect, his plans are good, and I would be an absolute fool to continue to draw up my own plans for my life, hoping that God will be impressed by them. His plans are already available, and they are perfect, perfect plans. So we've looked at some essential relationships. We looked at our relationship with God and what it is that he really wants from us. We looked at our relationship with the world's value system and how we can discover God's best for us by separating ourselves from that system. We looked at our relationship with ourselves. We talked about who we are, where we belong, and what we're to be doing with our lives. And last week, we looked at our relationship with the body of Christ, with the church. We talked about authentic community and what it takes for us to experience that here at Chapel Hill Church. And if you were away last Sunday, perhaps uh, inflicting unnecessary pain on yourself by running around the city with thousands of other crazy people, I want to encourage you to go to our website and listen to the message from last week. That was a very important message about our identity as a church and how we can grow the community experience here. So I hope that you're all able to hear that message. And if you don't have internet access and you would prefer the message in file form on a CD, just let us know. Uh, We'd be happy to make a copy for you and get that to you. We try to make every message available on the website, but can do them in other forms as well. So today's message, we'll look at a fifth relationship, the one that we have with our enemies. How do we overcome the evil aimed at us? 
How do we respond to that evil, that hate? And so I've entitled the message, How to Beat Darth Vader. My son Jude has uh, a fascination with Darth Vader and, and Vader's representation of evil is what got him into the title today. The reality is that we live in a fallen world that's under the rule of Satan and there is evil all around us. And that reality creates opportunities for that evil to be aimed at us in the form of persecution especially. Uh, it has been a little disturbing to me that my son, this pastor's son, has a fascination with a character that represents evil. <laughs> Not good for my image at all. So I have challenged him on it more than once. Um, Jude, he's going to lose, you know. The uh, Death Star's going to be destroyed, Jude. <laughs> so finally, my seven-year-old Jude got so frustrated with me that one day he says, Dad, the only reason that I really like him is because he has a cool costume, so stop bugging me about it. <laughs> I was channel surfing last week and I passed a channel that was showing the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and uh, Jude yells out, oh, I love this scene. All the bad guys get defeated. And so I was like, okay, there's peace again in the pastor's house. <laughs> the primary form of evil that I want to address this morning is the persecution that is aimed at us, at Christ's followers. There are two forms of it that stand out to me. There is the public persecution and the personal persecution. And please understand that it is not my desire to convince you that we are all innocent victims of persecution and we need to feel sorry for our martyred selves. And I am not including in my thinking today people that just don't like you. There are people that do not like me because there are things about me that are very unlikable. That's not persecution. Persecution is evil aimed at us because we are followers of Christ and the occurrence of that persecution is on the rise. Public persecution is very obviously there. I want to show you an example. Um, there's a tragic story that's been in the news the last few weeks about a teen boy named Jamie Rodemeyer. At 14 years of age, uh, Jamie took his own life after being harassed mercilessly because he was gay. His parents were on the Today Show being interviewed by Ann Curry about his life and the message that he wanted to get out there to other youth that were facing the same kind of abuse. Um, listen for the comment that Ann makes about a minute into this towards the end of the video. You know, there are more than 4,500 suicides committed by people ages between the ages of 10 and, and 24 last year in the United States. Do you see, and, and many we don't know how many, but some of those kids, perhaps a lot of them, a significant number even perhaps, are gay kids. Do you see that this could be part of a bigger problem? Oh, definitely. I mean, Jamie's been talking about bullying as a whole um, since he was in fifth grade. And it's just as time goes by, we're hearing you know, more and more stories. Just in the couple days of his wake and the day of his funeral, all the parents and kids that have come to us and seen, you know, just telling us about what is still happening out there and what has happened and all of them saying, oh, my kids were bullied and they were bullied for three years or I'm a kid and I've been bullied for the last two, three years and it's all the same story and it's just got to stop. Do you think our churches, our politicians and other adults who adhere to an anti-gay message 
enable some of this hate? And there it is. Once again, the church as a whole is labeled as being hateful towards a certain type of person when that truly does not represent the people in this room at all, nor does it represent Jesus Christ in any way. Sadly, there are some who do hate and claim their hate in the name of Christianity, and their horrible words and actions have helped to create this stereotype of the church. And with that stereotype will come greater and greater persecution of the church in our society, unless the church becomes increasingly known for the very thing that we're going to talk about this morning. And that thing is not tolerance, it's love, but a deep, challenging kind of love. We also face persecution on a personal level, much of which stems from the stereotype of the church being portrayed on a public level. Uh, in many of our lives, our co-workers, neighbors, relatives, fellow students who discover that we're Christians, and they jump to a conclusion based on their misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And so we get treated and viewed differently. And there are other situations as well where evil's aimed at us personally. It happens because of jealousy. It happens because there's something different about us. It happens because of revenge for a mistake that we might have made. It happens because of the sin in other people's lives. People can be mean. So should we feel sorry for ourselves for this? No, absolutely not. We are guaranteed by Jesus that we're going to have trouble in this life. So how then do we respond to the evil aimed at us? What should our response be to those who hurt us or treat us badly? What is it that should replace our revenge fantasies? You get those? Not willing to admit that you get those? Those dreams that we have of what we hope will happen to the people who hurt us or target us in some way, those dreams that are fueled by movie plots in which the good guy gets knocked down and left for dead, but then miraculously struggles to his feet, hunts down the bad guy and gives him the beating of his life, those dreams. Instead of those dreams, what should our response be? Let me rephrase the question this way. When do we look most like Jesus Christ? That's where today's passage is going to take us. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And as you're getting there, I want you to multitask. Turn with your fingers, but focus your mind on recalling a specific person in your life that's played the role of the villain in your revenge fantasy. And I know this can create a lot of pain in you that you were not counting on experiencing this morning. We're going to talk about that pain for a few weeks starting next Sunday. We're going to do a three-week series called Everybody Hurts. And we're going to look at how we react to pain, how God reacts to our pain, and how we ought to react to each other's pain. And so I'm not ignoring that, even though we won't talk about it a lot this morning. We'll talk more here about how we respond to the evil aimed at us. This is one dimension of our response. So Romans chapter 12 Let's begin with last Sunday's passage at verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now today's passage. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now notice something here. Paul makes a shift in his writing between verses 13 and verses 14. In verses 9 to 13, last week's passage, Paul's writing about our behavior towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. He offers instruction on how we are to treat God's people, and then he turns our attention to those who persecute us, our enemies. Those are the people that he's referring to in verses 14 to 21. And I love this. If you thought that the instruction that we were given last week about how we create authentic community here was seemingly impossible to accomplish, just look at what we're reading about how to treat our enemies. Once again, the bar is set high, but not so high that we cannot clear it with the power of God's Holy Spirit in us. Let's go ahead and break down today's passage. It's full of great counsel. In verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So what does Paul mean? What's the difference between blessing someone and cursing someone? Well, this goes to the very core of who we are. This is a character issue. This has to do with our desires regarding the person who has hurt us. And what's interesting here to me is that Paul does not mention forgiveness. Uh, we're going to talk about that next week, but Paul doesn't raise that subject here, so we won't either. What Paul is instructing here is blessing. In spite of the fact that the church in Rome was under constant persecution, the members of that church were to bless those who persecuted them. To bless someone means that you're to wish them well. We are to desire God's favor and blessing on their lives. Yes, on the lives of our enemies. My hope for the person who persecutes me must be hope for their success. We talked about that last week, that we are to spur each other on to success. That was in the context of the church family. Now it's in the context of our enemies. Whoever they are, whatever they have done, we are to desire God's best for them and their lives. We are to pray for God to bless them. The opposite of blessing is what we are instructed not to do. We are to bless and not curse. So cursing is the opposite of blessing. When we wish for retribution or revenge or our version of justice on someone who has wronged us, we are cursing them. We are not to pray against them. We are not to call down doom on them. We are not to wish for their misfortune, their failure, or that some disaster would happen to them. 
We are to bless those who persecute us. And no, this is not an easy thing to do. Let me give you a suggestion. If you're doing some of the things that I just described, like wishing disaster or punishment on someone who's wronged you, please do not leave here today without having dealt with that. Repent and seek God's forgiveness and renewing in this as soon as you possibly can. This is not a poison that you want to continue to drink. Now, I would imagine this was even more difficult for Christ's followers back then than it is for us now. Um, the, the movement, the revolution that Jesus initiated was met with fierce opposition. We looked at an example of that opposition in our study of the church at Ephesus over the summer. Christ knew that this would happen and he warned his followers that it would. And Jesus had some words of his own about this subject. And let's look at some of those words now before we go any further. Uh, mark your spot in Romans and turn back to Matthew 5 for a few minutes. Matthew chapter 5. And then we'll come right back to Romans 12. Because I want to show you how our passage is yet another case of Paul applying Christ's teaching himself. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. This is what Jesus says. You have heard it said, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Paul's taking the teachings of Christ and applying them to his own setting among the believers in Rome. He's telling the Romans that they must bless and not curse those who are persecuting them. Now look at the reason Jesus gave for telling his followers to do this. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Okay, does this mean that we're not adopted into God's family unless we first do this blessing, not cursing thing? No. No, it doesn't. What Jesus is doing here is answering the question that I asked earlier. When do we most look like Jesus Christ? We most resemble our creator when we love our enemies. We take on the family resemblance most clearly when we treat people in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. That's when we most clearly represent the family that we come from. And Jesus points out in his words the fact that his father acts this way. So we as his children ought to act this way as well. And here's a great contradiction to the prosperity gospel that's being preached in so many places. Jesus says that his father causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and his reign to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous. God shows no favoritism to his children in pouring out his blessings. He loves more than just those who love him and that is exactly what he's asking us to do. He's asking us to do the same. Let me explain the words at the end of what Jesus said so that they're not a distraction. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And before you write off these instructions as impossible, please understand that the word translated perfect is the Greek word teleos. 
And what's being instructed here is that we are to fulfill our God-given design fully, fully. There are commands that are easy to follow, especially with people you like and you want to hang out with, and there are commands that are not easy to follow, especially with people who want to hurt you. Those not-so-easy commands are also part of your God-given design. Okay, go back now to our passage in Romans 12. And look at verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And after Paul says that we're to bless those who persecute us, he says that we are to identify with them. Now we've often used this verse as an inspiration for us to care for each other well within the body of Christ. We rejoice with each other and we mourn with each other and that's a very good thing. But who's Paul talking about in this passage? He's talking about our enemies, about those who persecute us. Now the rubber's hitting the road. We've just moved from the attitude of blessing to the action of blessing. This is the first of three specific commands on how we're to treat those who persecute us. See, we don't need a command to rejoice or mourn with those that we care deeply about. We do that naturally. I've seen it happen many, many times right here in this church family. What Paul's talking about here is something that is not natural for us. It is something supernatural. This kind of action goes against our natural reaction to those who persecute us. But it is possible. Look at the example that Christ left us. Remember his last words as he was hanging on the cross. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. He was referring to those who persecuted him. And you're thinking, yeah, well, he was Jesus. Then look at Stephen follower of Christ who was stoned to death for his faith in Christ. What did he say while he was being stoned? Father, forgive them. When we take steps to identify with unbelievers, with those who persecute us or wrong us in some way, we become a visible manifestation of the grace and mercy of God. We are never more like our Father than when we are treating people in a way in which they don't deserve to be treated. Now let's get practical. That person that you've been thinking about, there will be an occasion to celebrate with them. The birth of a child, uh, their recovery from an illness, a wedding in the family, a promotion, a new home, the graduation of their child. Plan your response now. Rejoice with them. Plan to mourn with them as well when they lose a parent, a child, or a friend to disease, when they lose a job or their home, when their child goes astray, when they get in an accident, Plan your response now. I know it sounds illogical, but it's God's plan, not ours. Try it in obedience and see what God does with it. Paul then writes in verse 16 that we are to live in harmony with them. How? By seeing the playing field as level. We do not put ourselves above anyone, even if they've done something horrible to us. We cannot just excuse our own faults on the grounds that they have done something worse. We cannot allow ourselves to become conceited simply because we were the ones being wronged. There cannot be any sense of superiority. Yes, Paul uses the term people of low position, but listen to this, and I think you'll see his point here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul writing, and it'll be up on the screen. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. 
I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expected to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Well, when Paul talks about himself as being timid, he uses the same phrase as he does in our passage, referring to people of low position. In Luke 1.52, Mary is talking about how amazed she is that God has chosen her, and she says this, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. She refers to herself, the humble, using the same term used in our passage as people of low position. And then listen to Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even Jesus refers to himself using the same term. So what Paul's saying is that we are to recognize that God can use and often does use people who are timid and even flawed. We cannot look down on people even if they have hurt us. And imagine the struggle that the Christians were having with Paul being the leader of the church. Now you begin to understand this a little more. Verse 17 of our passage in Romans 12 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Then go to verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now between these two statements lies some preventative advice. We are to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And we are to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us. We are to honor those things that are good and right, especially when the eyes of the world are on us. We are to take careful thought of how others think, not for the sake of our reputation, but for the sake of our testimony. And here's a statement about living at peace with everyone. This is the way in which we will avoid the conflict in the first place and not have to fear unnecessary persecution. So let's try to put this declaration into practice. Our testimony is more important than our rights. Our testimony is more important than our rights. How we respond to injustice and personal attacks is more important than getting our own way or proving that we're right. And no, that is not an easy principle to live out. I know that. So we need to watch our behavior, doing what's right, and live at peace with everyone as much as we can. Part of giving up our rights is giving up our right to justice. In verse 19, Paul instructs that we're to leave room for God's wrath, to let God carry out the justice that's needed. He's promised all along that he will take care of setting things right, and we couldn't do it well if we tried our hardest. So we leave that to him. Instead, this is what we're to focus our efforts on. Verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay, more behavioral commands here. We're to reach out to those who persecute us and meet their needs. Feed them, give them something to drink. Serve them. Yes, the list is growing. We are to love our enemies, pray for them, bless them, forgive them, identify with them, live at peace and harmony with them, and now even serve them. It's almost as if God loves our enemies just as much as he loves us. 
which is pretty much exactly what Paul's getting at. God loves them so much that he offers them grace and mercy, and we being made in his likeness are to do the same. And then comes the statement that makes us feel all right about doing all these things. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Finally, some sort of justice is going to be done here. All we have to do, haha, is love, bless, pray, forgive, harmonize, identify, and serve, and they will finally get what they deserve. God will take out his flamethrower and scorch their hair off. They'll feel so guilty for what they've done that they'll experience a punishment worse than what we could ever dish out. It'll hurt so bad it'll feel like a heap of hot coals burning through their skulls. Now, allow me to spoil your vengeance party. As mine has been spoiled by careful research, and now I'm going to pass my misery on to you. This is not a picture of being nice to people who have been mean to you so that God will torch their toupees. Rob, come on up here. I've enlisted an elder for this. Just so you know, this is Rob Talifus. Um, let me explain to you what this is talking about. Back at the time that this was written, there was an Egyptian custom that looked like this. When an Egyptian had done something wrong, when he had made a mistake, which our elders never do, took a towel, piece of cloth, something like that, made something that he could put on his head. I learned how to do this living in, in Africa. Put that on your head, and you can use your hand to hold it there if you want. You'd put the towel on his head, and then you take a vessel, a bowl, a pot, something, fill the bottom of it with ashes, and on top, place embers from the fire, charcoal, burning ones. Place the burning embers on top of the ashes, and then he would take this bowl and balance it on his head. If you drop this, it's going to take you a long time to clean it up. <laughs> and the Egyptian who had made the offense had to walk through the community with this bowl of burning embers on his head. It was a move of repentance. It was a move of humility. And the, the smoke coming out from the embers represented that he was choosing to have the bad thoughts that had caused this error in the first place, to have those bad thoughts be burnt out of his head to purge and cleanse his mind. Was this punishment? Was this retribution? Was this vengeance? No, it wasn't. This was a step of humility, thank you, Rob, that they took to acknowledge they had done something wrong and needed to set things right. Repentance, forgiveness, and the renewing of our minds. That's God's desire for those who commit a grievance against us. And it should be our desire as well. Now some will wonder at this point if we're ignoring justice altogether here. Is Paul saying that we shouldn't even report crimes or protect ourselves from harm? Well, we're not going to answer that question today. Paul answers it himself in the very next chapter, in Romans chapter 13, where he talks about submitting to the authorities. How do you beat Darth Vader? 
bless him, identify with him, live in harmony with him, consider him an equal, be generous towards him, love him, pray for him, and leave the justice to God. He's got this figured out. In doing so, you will never look more like Jesus Christ. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come now and the worship team to come to the stage. While they're doing that, let's pray. We need to talk to God for a little bit about this. And as we reflect right now with eyes closed and heads bowed, if there's somebody that has come to mind during this sermon who has wronged you, who has persecuted you, then it's time to do business with God on this. And in this quiet moment, I want you to just come before your Lord right now and ask for forgiveness for the thoughts of revenge, of vengeance that you've had for the hatred that you've harbored towards this person who has wronged you. Turn that over to God right now. Just say, Lord, I want you to take this hate out of me. I know this is not your way. Take it from me and replace it with the kind of love that you're talking about here in Romans 12. Don't let me go another day with this hatred stored up in my heart. Renew my character, renew my mind, renew my behavior to more clearly reflect the image that I've been made in. And make plans to love your enemy. Father, there are times when you're asking us to do things that just seem so illogical and so difficult and we hope that we can just get through life with you forgiving those and us not having to do them and not having to face the hard stuff. But you've also reminded us many times that if we are to really experience the abundant life that Christ died to give us, then we're going to have to do these things. We're going to have to love our enemies. So I'm asking, Father, that for every one of us, myself included, that you would make that change in us. That you would transform my character. That you would renew my mind. lead me into the right kind of behavior, behavior that represents who you are and the grace and mercy that you have for those you created no matter what they've done. God, we need your power to do this. We're asking right now to draw on your Holy Spirit in our lives to make this possible, to make it happen. 
Lord, we live in a society that you're well aware of where more and more we are associated with hate. We are associated with judgment. We are associated with hypocrisy. We are surrounded by opportunities to love our enemies. Give us right now the desire to see our enemies succeed, to see our enemies receive grace and mercy from you just like we have. Teach us how we can represent you and offer that ourselves to those who have wronged us. Father, our society desperately needs the message of the cross. Pray for Jamie's family, this young man who took his own life. I ask that you would send voices of truth and reason and love into their lives that they will see beyond the answers that they're getting from the media and from society around them. To see that there is one who is loving and compassionate to the core and his name is Jesus Christ. Teach us, Father, to love our enemies. Remind us to pray for them. Help us to serve them, to identify with them, to be at peace with them. We're counting on you for this. Come now, Lord, to give. Give generously because you have been generous with us. In every area of our lives, teach us to be generous because what has been freely given to us should be freely given by us to others. We love you for the grace and mercy you've shown to us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.